uh, good to see a lot of people again. Um, when, when Brother Lamar said that about 2017, it doesn't seem like almost three years ago uh, when I got to be here at Wooden Valley and uh, had just a, a tremendous week. I, it was a blessing to me, and many of you have been a blessing to me. And uh, then just to come back uh, this weekend and uh, be able to be with you again, see a lot of the same faces, that's always an encouragement, as well as seeing new faces as an encouragement as well. I'm glad you're here this morning. I want to get right into the Word of God this morning. That's what we came for, so uh, let's get to it. I'm going to ask you to turn to the Gospel of John this morning, chapter 8, if you would please. The Gospel of John and chapter 8. <clears throat> I'm going to ask you to follow along as I read out loud, and I'm going to start in verse number 28. So we're looking at John chapter 8 and verse 28, and if you would please follow along silently as I read out loud. The Bible says in verse 28, Then said Jesus unto them, When ye have lifted up the Son of Man, then shall ye know that I am He, and that I do nothing of myself. But as my Father hath taught me, I speak these things. And he that sent me is with me. The Father hath not left me alone, for I do always those things that please him. As he spake these words, many believed on him. Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, If ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, We be Abraham's seed, and were never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou, ye shall be made free? Jesus answered them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin, and the servant abideth not in the house forever, but the son abideth ever. If the son therefore shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. We're going to look at these verses this morning, and I'm so excited about uh, what God has for us, and I'm excited about what God's done in my life. I didn't get the chance to tell three people uh, what it was like when heaven came down and glory filled my soul, uh, and I think probably a lot of us in here to tell that story would take a little bit more than a couple of verses while we're shaking hands, but... Man, what a blessing to just reflect back uh, this morning on the blessed assurance that Jesus is mine and what God's done in our life. And if you're sitting here right now this morning and you don't really know what God is doing in your life and you can't put your finger on what God's done in your life, I'm just going to ask this of you. Would you pay attention? Would you lis listen carefully to hear from God's Word what is possible for God to do in your life and what He wants to do in your life this morning? Let's pray. Heavenly Father... Thank you for your word. Thank you for not leaving us without a revelation of yourself. And Lord, I'm thankful that you love us. And Lord, I, I am amazed that you love us and that you care for us. I'm thankful for how you proved your love for us and sending your son to die on an old rugged cross, not to pay for any sins that he had done because he was sinless, but to voluntarily take upon himself my sin and the sin of every person of all time. And Lord, I'm, I'm thankful that you took the punishment for that. And Lord, that you have accomplished 
great things on our behalf. And Lord, I pray that the attention of every person might be centered upon the preaching of your word this morning, not because of me or because I'm anything, but because your word is everything. And God, I pray that you would have liberty to speak in our hearts and that your spirit would have liberty to move amongst us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to give you a little bit of the background of John chapter 8 and the passage that uh, we're looking at this morning. Earlier in John chapter 8, uh, the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day that hated Jesus, they really wanted to trap him. They really wanted to disprove him in the eyes of all of the people that weren't religious leaders. Uh, multitudes would show up every time Jesus would, would put himself forth to speak. And so the, the Jewish leaders were very concerned that all of these Jewish people were going to start following Jesus and they weren't going to be good Pharisaical or Sadduceical or Herodian or uh, Zionist Jews anymore. They, uh, they, they were just scared that they were going to lose their congregation, so to speak, uh, to the teachings of Jesus. And so they were threatened by Jesus. They hated Jesus. They wanted to disprove Jesus at any, at any turn. But they knew that they were going to have to be subtle in how they, they did it. They, they, they wanted to maybe trap him and get him to say something that was contrary to the Old Testament, to the law. Because all Jews held Moses as a principal figure. And if Jesus ever contradicted Moses, then they had him right where they wanted. So they would, they would create situations to bring before Jesus in front of the people Hopefully, that uh, hoping that Jesus would misstep or misspeak, and then they would have him, and they would they would discredit him, and they would say, "See, he's he's not the Messiah. He's not one for you to follow. He, he's he's not sent from God. Uh, he doesn't have the power of God upon his life." Uh, and and yet. All of the teachings that Jesus had done were with authority. All of the miracles that he had performed showed supernatural ability. So they knew they had their work cut out for, him, for them. So earlier in John chapter 8, they set up a scenario, I believe on purpose, where they entrapped a, a woman who was in the very act of adultery. And they, they caught her in the very act of adultery uh, I, I don't know about you, and the Bible's not, it, it, it doesn't give us a lot of detail on this. I think it's very possible they set up the situation and, uh, and then went in and intervened in that situation. They bring this woman before Jesus in front of uh, the multitudes. They cast her down on the ground and they said, Now, uh, judge for us what should be done to this woman who was taken in the very act of adultery. Uh, Moses said that she should be stoned to death. What do you say? Their thinking is this, that if Jesus goes along with the law of Moses, what's with all this grace he's been preaching? At the same time, if he negates the law of Moses and says that, that something other than stoning should be done in this case, then they had him dead to rights because he was speaking against what Moses had said. So they viewed this as an infallible plan to trap Jesus. And they had no interest in their hearts of hearing the truth or what Jesus actually had to say. They just wanted to make him look foolish. They just wanted to discredit him. They just wanted to tear him down. 
Jesus is more than amazing. <laughs> He's God. Jesus does an amazing, amazing thing in this. When his words would have trapped him, Jesus said nothing. And when they posed the question before him, Jesus just simply stooped down and began to write in the dirt. I can't wait till I get to heaven someday and find out what did he write in that dirt. The Bible doesn't tell us. But he begins to write in the dirt, and as he writes in the dirt, he says these words. Let him that hath no sin cast the first stone. And it gets about that quiet. And one at a time, the men that brought her and have accused her begin to slip away through the multitude, through the crowd, and disappear. So that when Jesus raises back up again, there's not one of these Pharisees that were her accusers standing before them, but the woman was still there. I think that says something about her heart. Because she's still there, bowed before the Savior, bowed before the Master. And Jesus lovingly says, Madam, where are thine accusers? There is no man, Lord. Jesus says this, Neither do I condemn thee. I want to point this out real quick. Jesus didn't condone her sin. As a matter of fact, he said, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. But he showed mercy. He showed grace. So, so I, I told you that story to kind of give us the setting for the discourse that we're going to look at this morning. Because it's in this discourse that, keep in your minds... There's still a multitude of people standing around. And if I could call it this, it's a mixed multitude of people. There's people in there that are listening to Jesus because they want to hear. They, they want to know what He has to say and they, they want to hear truth. They, 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 they're even thinking about the fact that maybe He is who He says and, and maybe He is God and they are interested in what Jesus has to say. But Mixed in also are others that don't care what he has to say. They've already made up their mind. He is not the Messiah. He's not God. And even though some of the Pharisees had come and now left, there's still others there. There's still others that want to find accusation against the Savior. And so we're dealing with a mixed multitude of people. So Jesus says... In uh, verse number 28, looking back at it again, Then said Jesus unto them, When ye have lifted up the Son of Man, then shall ye know that I am He, and that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father hath taught me, I speak these things. This was the first time publicly that Jesus had actually laid out a clear presentation for what was going to happen to him and how he was going to die and who was going to be primarily responsible for it. He looks at people within this multitude, the multitude of the Jews. By the way, it's going to be well, several chapters later in John 19 when a similar multitude of Jews, if not some of the very same people, are gathered around crying, Crucify Him! Crucify Him! But on this day... They're listening to what he has to say, and Jesus says, 
when ye have lifted up the Son of Man, then you'll know that I am He. It's an interesting statement. It's actually a prophecy that he's giving himself about, and about his upcoming death. And if we were to fast forward and look at the events on that day when the nails were put in his hands and feet and when that cross was lifted up and set in its place and he hung there suspended between heaven and earth, there were events that took place on that day that all those present knew. This isn't just a normal day. This is not just a normal execution. If there was such a thing in Rome as a normal crucifixion, this is not it. As a matter of fact, people that didn't even have a full understanding of what was going on spiritually made comment recorded in the Bible, surely this man is the Son of God. In fulfillment to what Jesus had said right here, that when I am lifted up, then shall ye know that I am He. Then He, 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 he stated of what was going to happen to Him, and He stated that this was part of the Father's plan. You have to understand that the message that Jesus was giving both to those in the crowd that were His accusers and those in the, in the crowd that were searchers, the message was the same to both of them. There is a God who loves you, and this God has sent me, and this God is with me, and this God has chosen for me to take this path and be lifted up by you. But I'm not just being lifted up by you, I'm being lifted up for you. And essentially what Jesus is giving them here is the gospel message of His death, His burial, and His resurrection. And as he gives them that message, the Bible says in verse number 30 that as he spake these words, many believed on him. They saw it. They understood it. They understood that they had a need and that Jesus was the one who came to fulfill that need. And they believed in him. And so now Jesus turns all of his attention to the believing in the crowd. Now he's speaking to the whole multitude, understand. His words are being heard by the whole multitude. But his, his next statements, the Bible tells us, his next statements are intended for those Jews that just believed in him. And this is what he said to them. He said, if ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Now think about this with me for just a second. Imagine you're in that multitude and, and you're not one of those believing Jews. And Jesus says these words. And so you're not thinking about them from the perspective of spiritually what just took place in your life. You're hearing those words and you're immediately offended by them. Because now Jesus seems to be mocking your heritage. And he says, that if you, and you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. And just imagine some good religious, religious uh, Jewish people right here that say, wait a minute. We're Abraham's children. That's the go-to for the Jewish people of Jesus' day. And even some Jewish people of our day. That's the go-to. We are Abraham's children. Our heritage means everything. 
And so they take offense to this statement because they don't understand it from the same perspective as those who have just believed do. So they, they that are in the multitude that hear this but not believing, they respond to him in verse 33. They answered him, we be Abraham's seed. Can't you just kind of hear the animosity in that? Kind of hear the anger in that? They be, uh, we be Abraham's seed and were never in bondage to any man. Time out. We're talking about Jewish people here, right? So they're claiming that since Abraham, we've never been in bondage to any man. I read this and you know, I'm studying it out and I'm thinking, now see, I'd like to step in right here. Just as a, just as a debater, <laughs> Uh, as a presenter of facts, <laughs> allow me to interject right here. What do you call Egypt? I mean, you were, that's since Abraham, and you were in Egypt, and God himself called it bondage. You called it bondage. Egypt called it bondage. Everybody knew you were in bondage in Egypt. God had to come and bring you out. And we looked at this at the couples retreat. He, he bare them on eagles' wings unto himself. He delivered them out of the bondage of Egypt. What do you mean we are Abraham's seed and have never been in bondage to any man? Go back and read your own literature. What about the book of Judges? When you were under tribute and then God would raise up a deliverer and free you from tribute. He wasn't just freeing you because you were already free. He was freeing you because you were in bondage. You were under tribute. And this cycle happened over and over and over again in one book of the Bible. And then what about Assyria? What about Babylon? Okay, here's the most obvious. At the moment that these men said these words to Jesus, they're under the thumb of the Roman Empire in bondage to Rome. How could they possibly have the gall to say to Jesus, we're Abraham's seed, and we've never been in bondage to any man. We have always been free. I really want you to listen to me for just a second. Because this is a level of self-deception that a lot of people live under even today. When you, when you talk to somebody and we t when you tell them, hey, listen, Jesus wants to set you free. It's not uncommon for people to look at you like, set me free from what? I've never been in bondage. I, I was born in the United States of America. This is a free country. 
I've always been free. And I'm not belittling that. I'm thankful to be a citizen of the United States of America. I'm thankful for the freedoms that we have in this country, religious and otherwise. And I'm thankful for the fact that other people can come from other parts of the world and enjoy the freedom that we have here in the United States of America as well. I'm thankful that our country has, has for a long time stood for freedom. Uh, but, but wait a minute. I, I, I'm an American. I've never been anybody's slave. I've never been a servant to anybody. I'm free. So that's what they said to Jesus. And you say, man, they are horribly self-deceived. No more than many people are today about their own bondage. Because this is what Jesus, this is how Jesus responds. Jesus answered them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. This is what he says to the unbelievers in the multitude now. He says, no, you don't understand. You want to you claim through self-deception that you're not in bondage, but I'm, I'm not even talking about to other nations, to other peoples, to, to emperors and tyrants. Every one of you are a slave to sin. Well, what makes me a slave to sin? Well, Jesus laid it out. If you've ever committed a sin, then you're a servant to sin. Well, fortunately, preacher, I, I never have. <clears throat> no, wait, wait. That's part of that self-deception. And it's either one of two things. It's either a major self-deception or it's an involuntary ignorance. Maybe because we don't know what sin is. And if we don't know what sin is, then how can we know if we have participated or not? How can we know if we've been guilty? Uh, well, the reality is, the Bible says that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. In one of our children's programs that our church has in the public school in Springfield, Missouri, when we're teaching about the concept of sin, we say it like this. Sin is anything that you think, say, or do that doesn't please God or breaks His laws. Hand motions and all. Really tempted to have you do it with me, but I'm not going to. <laughs> but sin is anything that we think. You realize that thoughts can be sinful. Thoughts can transgress against the character of God. Sin is anything that we think, say, or do that doesn't please God or breaks His laws. And, and, and all of us are guilty. There is none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And because we have sinned, we are servants to sin. And we are under the bondage of sin, powerless to redeem ourselves, powerless, powerless to, def, to uh, 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 deliver ourselves, powerless to rise above it. We are stuck. That's what bondage is. You're stuck. This morning before we came over, keep in mind that the services at the church that I normally pastor uh, started two hours before we did here today. And I got a text from 
our uh, assistant pastor who mentioned uh, the name of a young man and said, hey, he showed up this morning and he was wanting to see you. And I saw this name in this text on my phone and I just immediately thought this. Yep, that's, that's one of those guys who he shows up every now and then. And every time he shows up, he shows up full of good intentions. And every time he shows up, he shows up with a whole lot of regrets. But the truth is, drugs has had him wrapped around the collar for years and years and years. And he's never fully surrendered it to Jesus. He's never really sought true freedom through Jesus Christ. Oh, he's got knowledge of Jesus and he's learned things about Jesus during certain prison sentences and things like that, but he's powerless against the bondage that he's in. And we could get pretty hard on that young man for letting his life go that direction until we have to be honest with ourselves this morning and say, that's where we all at least were at one point. Under the bondage of sin, not knowing any different and not able to just stop. Do you have any idea how many people try to turn over a new leaf? You know how many people just try to go for a new beginning or a second chance only to end up doing things differently until the pain of their failure wears off only to go right back down the same road again with its destruction and its pain and its hurt all over again. I'm not trying this morning to preach a hopeless situation. I'm trying to give us the truth of God's Word on what it's like without Jesus. But the hope is in Jesus. Because the verse is very, very clear in verse number 36. If the Son therefore shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. The word indeed means truly. You don't just have to act like you're free when you've truly been born again, when you've truly trusted Jesus as your Savior, when you've truly given it to Him, you don't have to act like you're free. He makes you free indeed. He sets you free from the bondage of sin. He gives you another option. Listen, saved people still sin. But saved people sin because they choose to listen to their flesh. Save people sin because they choose to go uh, an old direction. But if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. Guess what? Through Jesus Christ, there's a way out of the bondage of sin. There is a legitimate freedom that can be understood, that can be enjoyed, and you have the power of God in your life to go a different direction, one that you can never know without Him. He's the answer. He's the remedy. And if He makes you free, only then can you be truly free.
well, preacher, what's this freedom look like? This is my favorite part. I don't know if the chairs have seatbelts on them here, but buckle up. Because the freedom that he gives when he makes us free indeed is an amazing freedom. It's a freedom from sin and sin's bondage. I've already told you that. But let me, let me explain to you what else that means. Because sin never operates alone. Sin has other chains that it uses to bind us. For example, because sin is wrong, one of the chains that binds us as a result of sin is the bondage of guilt. I want to say that again. Because sin is wrong, we're bound by guilt. You say, well, if I'm lost and I don't even know what sin is, then how could I be bound by guilt? Well, I'd be happy to tell you why. Because as a creation of God in His image, everybody in here has the law of God written on our hearts. Uh, can I use another word? It's called a conscience. And we've got it. It's that conscience that is not sufficient enough of a knowledge of God to bring us to, our, to salvation, but it's the conscience. The conscience is that doorway into our hearts by which God is able to get our attention by letting us know there is right, there is wrong, and we have failed. The conscience doesn't say within a, within a person who's dead and trespasses and sins. The conscience is not a sufficient enough revelation to say, come to Jesus. But the conscience is enough of God's character built into us that says, yeah, you really blew it right there. Yeah, that was wrong. Yeah, you made a mistake. You know what I'm talking about. I mean, even as a kid, I think back to times where I did something, and I mean, just as soon as that activity happened, it was like, oh, that was not the right move. That was not a good decision. And I knew it was wrong. Well, Brother Decker, that's because you grew up in a Christian household, and you're... you're uh, worldview was shaped by a social construct that made you to feel guilty for what you did. No. It was because of a conscience that says there's right and there's wrong and you've done wrong. And that feeling of wrongdoing is called guilt. And psychologists and sociologists all over the world can explain it away and blame it on any number of things, but fundamentally we feel guilt because we've done wrong. And guilt can bind us. As a matter of fact, there, there are people that really when it comes to sin... That's really what wraps them up more than anything else. They're just completely and totally immobilized by guilt. You know what it does? It makes us vulnerable. Because when we're under this bondage of guilt, 
We have the sense that maybe if we can just atone for our wrongs, that maybe we can feel better about ourselves. But I'm going to tell you, you can spend your whole life trying to do good and atoning for the wrongs that you've done, and the guilt still stays. It still remains. But I'm happy to tell you this morning that if the Son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. Because when Jesus forgives the sin, He wipes the guilt away. I'm not saying that you won't go on through life with memories of the pain of those wrongful decisions or even some regrets that you made those decisions. Those are natural to human life. But what I'm saying is, you don't have to let Satan get you down and bog you down with the guilt of it and and, and make you vulnerable to attack from Satan or others that would prey upon the guilty because Jesus does not have us to live our lives uh, going through the rest of our life with our sin forgiven. But don't you forget about it. Let Let me just ask you this. If God forgets when He forgives, then don't you think He wants us to as well? No, I'm not making that up. The Bible tells us that. That God doesn't just forgive our sin, He forgets it. Well, how does an all-knowing God forget anything? I'm going to ask Him someday. I don't know that I can give you a clear answer to that. I just know what the Word of God tells me. I know that He tells me that He takes our sins and He separates them from us as far as the east is from the west. Man, when I started, I started meditating on that, day one, on that one day, I was thinking through that and this thought came to my mind that it's a good thing He didn't say separates them as far as the north is from the south. Now think about this for just a second. If I start walking north right now, I will eventually come to a point where I'll be going south. Because there's a point where they meet. Or I could go south and I could eventually reach a point where I'm going north because there's a point down there where north and south meet. But Jesus said they're as far as the east is from the west. Guess what? I could start off today walking due east and I could walk and I could walk and I could walk and I can walk and I can walk and I can walk and I can keep going east forever. I could do the same thing if I decided to go west. Because there's never a point where they meet where all of a sudden I'm going the other direction. He said they are as far as the east is from the west. They are buried, he said, symbolically. They are buried in the deepest part of the sea, which remains one of the only parts in this planet or off this planet that we've never fully explored. They're gone. And so's the guilt. I'm so glad to tell you I've done a lot of things in my life I'm not proud of. And sometimes I still feel the regret for it. But I don't get bogged down in the guilt of it because I know this. What Jesus did by dying for me on the cross of Calvary and raising again from the dead was all that God required for a guilty sinner. And that when Jesus paid that price, He not only died for my sin, but He died bearing the guilt of that sin. He has taken that in my place, and He does not have it for me to bear myself. But because sin is wrong, sin brings the chains of guilt to bind us. Because sin has consequences, 
Sinners are bound in the chains of fear. I don't mind telling you that before I got saved, I was scared. <laughs> that whole conscience thing telling me that I've done wrong, and then hearing the truth that God's a holy God that can't have any part with sin, I knew in my heart that I was separated from God, that my sin had caused a separation. And I knew from God's Word that that separation was, was in existence right now. No, that's what Jesus said. Jesus said that whosoever believeth on Him shall not see the wrath of God, but whosoever believeth not, the wrath of God abideth on him already. I mean, that separation is already there. And the scary thing is this, that if we die in our sins, that separation is forever. Because sin has consequences, we're bound by fear. Maybe you're struggling with some of this bondage, whether it's guilt, fear, powerless against sin. And you might think, you know what, maybe, maybe Christianity's not the only answer. Maybe I could find an answer in some of these other religions or things like that. You know what you're going to find? You're going to find that most religions of this world are fear-based religions. Everything that's involved in the worship process is for the purpose of appeasing some angry God and keeping his bad juju off your back. But I'm telling you, that's not the loving and living true God. One missionary was at our church here recently and he said, he said, in, in my country where I'm at, every religion that's practiced in my country demands some sacrifice of death to appease its God or gods. Christianity is the only religion where God sacrifices himself for mankind. I'll tell you something this morning. When Jesus sets us free, the fear goes away. God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of love and of power and of a sound mind. I, listen, I got saved when I was five years old, but I can remember this. I didn't know everything about the Bible. I didn't know all the truth of what I needed to know as a five-year-old boy. I knew I was a sinner. I knew there were consequences for my sin. I knew that Jesus died to pay the penalty for my sin. And I knew that if I called upon Him and repented of my sin, that He would forgive me of my sin and be my Savior. And when He saved me, one of the most noticeable change that, changes that took place in my heart as a five-year-old boy was that night when I laid down to go to sleep. I remembered to this day that was different than the night before. The night before, I was asking questions about salvation. The night before, I was, I was timid about laying down. I was worried about what might happen to me during the night. But that night that I got saved, when I put my head on the pillow, I wasn't afraid of eternity anymore. I wasn't afraid of death anymore. 
I wasn't afraid of the consequences of sin anymore. And do you know why? Because Jesus Christ had set me free. The Bible says that He tasted death for every man. He did that for me. The Bible says that God commendeth His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us in our place. And Jesus Christ sets us free indeed from fear. Because sin is wrong, we're often bound by guilt. Because sin has consequences, we're often bound by fear. And because sin never lasts, we're often bound by emptiness. And there could be somebody in here this morning who's completely bound by emptiness. And you're longing for something real. You're longing for satisfaction. You're longing to be actually whole. You know that your life is missing fulfillment. You know that your life is missing out on the fullness of life that this Bible says that you can have. And you are bound, consumed by your emptiness because every sinful choice and decision you've ever made has just left you back at the same point. Needing something else or something more. But I'm going to tell you this morning, Jesus Christ sets us free from the bondage of emptiness and failure and confusion because when He makes us free, we are free indeed in every part, in every way. And I'm telling you this morning, there is nothing like it. There's nothing like a heart that is absolutely free. A heart that can face temptation and resist it because you know there's a better way. A heart that can be troubled and tempted by guilt and be able to look back at Satan and say, that's my past. It's under the blood. It's gone. God doesn't even remember that anymore. And I'm moving on. I'm talking about a heart that can be tempted to fear about tomorrow or the next day or the next day. But when you realize there's a Savior who loved us so much that He died on the cross so that we could have eternal life, why should I fear? What do I have to fear? I have everything when I have Jesus. And the fear melts away. When I can wake up each and every morning and say, God, I don't know what you have for me today. But God, you have me. And whatever you want to do in my life and however you want to work, Lord, I know that it's going to be a great day. Lord, you fill my life. God, you give me purpose. You give my life meaning. And I know it's real. And being able to face every day with satisfaction and fulfillment of knowing God made me and this is why He made me. To serve Him. To bring Him glory. And I'm telling you right now, you are going to go through life being the servant of someone or something. It's all about the master you choose. Sin is a horrible master that uses, abuses, and destroys. But the Son will truly 
set you free. And if you've never trusted in Jesus Christ for your salvation, I urge you, I beg you, I implore you, make that decision today. Repent of your sin. Come to Jesus. Ask Him to be your Savior. He's already died for you. He's already risen again from the grave to be a living Savior. And if you'll call upon Him today, He wants to make you free indeed. Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd bless your word this morning and I pray that you'd bless this time of invitation. God, I pray that you'd have liberty to speak to our hearts. Lord, maybe there's somebody in this service this morning that doesn't know Jesus Christ as Savior. God, I, I pray this morning that your spirit would be working in their heart, just confirming the truth of your word that you gave to these Jewish people many years ago. It's the same truth today. And the condition that they were in in their lostness then is the same condition that lost people are in today. And Lord, we're in need of being set free by the only Savior who can set us free indeed. And Lord, if there's somebody that needs to be saved, I pray that they would choose to make that decision today. Lord, maybe there's a saved person in here this morning and Lord, through your word, you've reminded them of what freedom really is and what it looks like. And Lord, maybe there would be a child of God this morning that would use this invitation time to come to this altar and say, God, I want to thank you for setting me free. And Lord, I'm asking you to help me continue my life in the freedom that you have for me. God, whatever you've accomplished in our heart, I pray that you'd have liberty to work. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to ask